Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I'm glad because lots of little kids have come up to me and said, Pastor Cliff, what is that? And I said, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And they all had this baby freak out on me and they said, this and this, um, some of you know, is words with friends. Um, I am no dummy. So I realize that on any given Sunday, um, smartphone users <clears throat> during sermon time, um, one third of you look up the scripture passage on uh, version and you're reading along. One third of you are checking scores, go Chiefs. And <clears throat> one third of you are playing words with friends while I preach. So I decided I would just go ahead and play along. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah. So this is a Words with Friends board. If you are not a Words with Friends player, think Scrabble for phone nerds, and you'll get it, okay? That's all it is, Scrabble for phone nerds, or iPad nerds, as the case may be. I want to see all the hands of the guilty, those who are Words with Friends players, okay? Now um, look around for um, the people who just went like this because they didn't want to admit. I play against Laura and Laura only um, because I just can't, I can't multitask. So I can't have like seven games going on at once. I can only manage one. And yet uh, my streak have never won against Laura. Not one time ever. <clears throat> Not one time ever. Laura, um, Laura rules at uh, Words with Friends. That bothers me a lot. And uh, so I keep playing because one of these days, I hope to come within 100 points of her. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way that deal goes, okay? Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about uh, words with friends over the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to back up and, and do this. You guys remember these? I handed these out uh, three months ago. They were in the pews. They were in your um, um, bulletins. 79 of you said, God tapped me on the shoulder and said specifically, I want, I want you to pray, to intercede for this church and for the uh, LC Valley. And so we've been keeping you updated in uh, the best ways that we could between texting and email and snail mail and all that stuff with prayer requests. And I just want you to know that some amazing things have happened because you have prayed. Um, people have continued to give their hearts to Christ. We have seen some lives transformed. We've seen doors open that had remained shut to us for a very, very long time. And uh, I have sensed the encouragement of God's Holy Spirit in my life in ways that I did not know before because you guys prayed. But what I said was three months. And at the end of three months, if, uh, if, you're, um, if you're done with your duty there, we would gladly say, okay, um, thank you for serving. So I want you to know that your time of intercession that you promised has now come to a conclusion. But I'll tell you this, we can't live without it. We just can't. And so some of you I know, God tapped on the shoulder for a season, but some of you have found a whole new life in connection with God through through this dedicated prayer time. And somebody tell me, you know, I used to try to remember to pray every day. And within a week's time, I became a person who prays 20, 30 minutes a day simply because I said I would. So I think this has done some incredible things in the lives of the people who have prayed. We're not going to hand out cards again. Just know this. Um, Pastor Bill, we're going to send out um, prayer reminders again tomorrow on Monday. And if you need to be done, 
don't you just message Pastor Bill back and let him know. Otherwise, we're going to continue to send the reminders out and ask you to keep praying. And um, Kingdom of Heaven is going to come right here in the LC Valley because we're going, to, we're going to keep grabbing God by the collar and say, would you come down here, please, and minister to us and through us. Well, um, the word of the day, line up. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But uh, there's another word, compound word, that I kind of want to talk about a little bit first. And the word is this, self-doubt. Self-doubt. You ever struggle with that? Without playing armchair psychologist and launching into some long story about being abandoned as a child and blaming my every adult thought on events that happened to me when I was a toddler, uh, suffice it to say that this business, self-doubt, has been a lifelong struggle for me. Not every moment of my life, for sure, but I have some regular battles with self-doubt that cause me to question whether God can use me in His service. I've made some mistakes. I've committed some sins. I've chosen poorly enough at times that the enemy of our souls sometimes gets to beat me up pretty good and cause me to doubt that God will accomplish great things through a guy like me. Had a little bout with that this morning. There's a group of men that pray for me every Sunday morning right before I come in here to, to preach. And I just walked in this morning. I said, I don't have any business being here today. Definitely don't have any business being up on the platform. Because of my brokenness. And um, they reminded me this is not about me. And that God's mercy and grace is bigger than my mess-ups. We're grateful for that, aren't we? Yeah. Well, um, the whole business of self-doubt, you know, people help fuel that. I had a guy who has built a very successful business um, tell me that, and I'm not making this up, and I'm not paraphrasing. He said, quote, because you're not tall and good-looking, you're never going to be a great leader. Thanks for that. All of that. I was pretty sure about the tall part, but the rest, come on. Help me out a little bit. Someone else uh, told me that they have often prayed, often prayed, that God would give me a good singing voice because I didn't have one and would need it in order to do what God wanted to do through me. Pastor, I've often prayed, why? Why didn't you give Cliff a better singing voice? It wasn't my favorite day. Struggled with a little self-doubt afterwards. <laughs> Between my own inner voice, the voice of Satan himself, I think, and, uh, and those kinds of inputs from, from people in my life, I've at times doubted whether God could go big in my life and use me to any kind of great or lasting effect in his work. Any of you struggle with that stuff? Because I do. When you look at your life and abilities, when you look at your family of origin, do you sometimes doubt that God can make much of you and use you powerfully to accomplish His will in this world? Do you feel ashamed and useless at times? Do you feel like you've blown it too many times for God to love you, let alone for you to be used effectively to bring Him glory and honor? Do you sometimes see yourself as a spiritual screw-up who lacks what it takes for God 
and the kingdom. If so, I'm really glad that you're here today because that's exactly what I want to teach about for a little bit this morning. My hope is that by the time you walk out that door somewhere around noon, that you will believe just the opposite. Not that you are so incredibly awesome and perfect that God's lucky to have you on his team, but that inclusive of your warts and your weaknesses, God can use you and intends to. He desires to use imperfect people just like you and me to bring his kingdom on earth and will use all of us broken people who will allow him. He will use all of us to make his will happen here. Recently, I was reading through Matthew's version of the Jesus story, and it struck me again. Jesus' life and teachings were absolutely revolutionary, world-changing. So I slowed down a little bit and sort of soaked in those first five chapters of the book. And as I did so, there were some words that started to sort of leap off the page at me. So over the next several weeks together, I want to share with you a message uh, a series of messages from those first five chapters of Matthew, focusing on the words that I think help, help bring those passages into sharp focus. And that's why the word lineup is, is on the page today. And um, just to make it a little bit fun, we'll do it words with friends style here. Okay? Today's word is, uh, is up there. It's, it's lineup. And, and that means that today I am going to do the unthinkable, the thing they tell you never to do in preacher school if they have such a thing called preacher school. And it's this. I'm going to teach from Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you know much about the Bible, you know that Matthew chapter 1 is the part that nobody reads. Because Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. And it's not a brief one. It chronicles 42 generations of people. It covers a span of more than 2,000 years. And it includes names like Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, people. That's a real name for a real guy who I think had a real hard time in seventh grade because his name was Jehoshaphat. Um, that was a real name. Uh, go figure. And as you read the genealogy, your mind sort of goes numb because you can't pronounce half of the names. And even if you could, their stories are mostly unknown to us. So it reads something like, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat thus-and-such, and thus-and-such begat blah, 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 blah. And it all just kind of turns into this mush as you read from there. That's how it reads to most people, I think, but I also have to confess that that's not exactly the case for me because I'm a Bible nerd, okay? Uh, I know that um, is because I've read the Bible a fair number of times, which I highly recommend to all of you. Um, you. You read it more, you'll understand it more. It's a real simple process. And if the Bible seems entirely too gigantic, just think of it as like, you know, five TV guides, okay? And then all of a sudden it's it's readable. If, uh, just think of it as like one-eighth of the Harry Potter series or one-eighth of, what's, what's the vampire? Twilight. Yeah. So no excuses from all the Twilight readers who say, I can't read the Bible. It's too big. Okay. Um, if you're a left behind series person, just chop that by like a millionth and you get to read the Bible. Okay. Honestly, if you read for like three or four chapters a day, 20-ish minutes, um, you'll read the whole Bible in a year's time, okay? Highly recommend that you do that. I've done that a bunch of times, and so I've turned into a Bible nerd, guy who knows people like Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and Jehoshaphat and their life stories. Um, 
You will too if you read it a bunch. At any rate, I've, I've read it a few times, so names on that list, uh, some of the names stood out to me. And I know that if you read down through that list, and I'm not going to read it out loud because, you know, um, you would recognize some t- names too. You'd recognize people like Abraham and King David and Jesus. But I'm going to talk about some of the other names on the list today. And as I read through the list, as I did that earlier this week, I jotted a few quick notes out to the side in the margins around some of the names. And when I got to the end of that chapter, a rather interesting picture emerged for me. Now, this is the genealogy of Jesus, mind you. It's the story of that great family line that produced the Savior of the world. And with a notable number of exceptions, here's what I learned. It is a lineup of losers. That's it. You read down through that list. It is a lineup of absolute losers. Let me explain by telling just the most boiled down version of the life stories of some of the people who show up in the lineup of losers. Uh, Let's start with Abraham. That's kind of where the genealogy starts. If you know uh, much about Abraham, if you know much about world religions, you don't have to be an expert in Christianity to recognize the name Abraham. Abraham is uh, widely regarded as the father of the faith to all of the people who think their faith is the real one. So Christians and Jews and Muslims alike all say Abraham was our father in the faith. So Abraham gets kind of hero status as you read through the Bible, but the problem is this. He was a real guy with real problems. Abraham specifically was a guy with family problems, okay? If you're looking for uh, somebody to identify with in the scriptures, hey, America, Abraham might be your guy. Here's why. He had a step family. Lots of us in America are step families. Abraham was a guy with a step family. He just wasn't very good at managing his step family. Abraham was a guy who had dealt for decades with infertility. That's a problem that a lot of us have struggled with. Abraham was a guy who let jealousy get the upper hand in his family life. It got absolutely out of control and came down to the place where some family members were kicked out and literally left in the desert to die. Abraham also had some personal character problems. He had this beautiful wife, and as he traveled around, he was scared to death that other people were going to fall in love with his wife because she was so beautiful. Now, I think that's neat. I think that's great for every guy to think, my wife is so beautiful, other people are going to fall in love with her at first sight. Abraham, however, thought that because that was the case, he should probably lie and tell people, oh, it's just my sister, because that fixes the problem, right? When Abraham did that a couple of times, um, these uh, other men thought, well, hey, if she's your sister, the way things worked in the past, sell her to me as a wife. So they took her and, um, well, bad things happened, right? Imagine being Sarah. Thanks, Abraham. Too late, she realized she had a coward for a husband. He was lying, trying to get out of trouble, and he had some character defects. There's Abraham, uh, suspect number one on the lineup of losers. He had a boy, he had a, a couple of them, but he had one named Isaac. Isaac was a guy who shared a problem that, that some um, people in our culture do. He just couldn't find the person to spend his life with. And he was well into his 40s before dad finally said, um, we're getting you a mail order bride. And they sent off to another country and got one and brought her in. 
but he'd struggled for a couple of decades wondering maybe there's nobody out there for me. So somebody that we can connect with. But once he did get a wife, he said, well, I learned well from my old man. And uh, he followed dad's footsteps and thought the woman was so beautiful that everybody else would fall in love with her. And so he, too, said, not nah, just my sister and another king tried to take his wife as a wife. And um, God himself showed up and said, you touch that woman and I will kill you and all of your kind. And uh, somebody suddenly became a believer in God and made their way back to Isaac and said, um, take your wife back and get out. Thank you. Yeah. Isaac uh, didn't manage his sons very well either. And uh, as they grew up, well, the family ended up being blown apart because each of the two parents decided that they had a favorite child and that they would let that be known. And so one boy hated the other boy because mom loved him more. And one boy hated the other boy because dad loved him more. And those two boys began to lie and manipulate one another in a lifelong contest that ended up with one of the two saying, I'll kill you if I ever lay eyes on you again. And so son number two ended up fleeing the country. And um, his name was Jacob. Jacob was an interesting guy. He's uh, number three on the lineup of losers. Um, something happened in the, the birth process where child number one came out and child number two was holding on to his heel. And so they just kind of came out and boom, one fell swoop. And, uh, well, firstborn's firstborn and firstborn gets favors. And secondborn son, you know, it was just this in utero thing. You know how twins get tangled up. But he was holding on to the heel and somebody thought that was prophetic. And they said, we should name him the grabber. And they did, and that's what the word Jacob means, grabber or grasper, and, um, or usurper, meaning the guy who tries to take a position that doesn't belong to him. And that came to characterize Jacob's life. Whoever saw that as a prophetic moment was right. That, or they schooled that boy to be a usurper because his whole life long, he was a guy who was scheming and trying to get what didn't rightfully belong to him and take positions of power and wealth. He was uh, a master, became a master manipulator of both his brother and his father and his father-in-law. And if you read the story of Jacob, it's basically a story of how he cheated his, his brother out of his inheritance, how he cheated his father out of getting to willfully give his blessing to his sons, and how he cheated his father-in-law out of his fortune and livestock. Then, when he decided that it was time for him to go back home, he still had this problem with the brother who wanted to kill him, so he prayed and said, God, I really need you to keep me safe. And here's how I think you should do it. So they came to a, a brook uh, that they needed to cross, and it was time to camp. So he sent the women and children across where he was sure that his brother and 400 bloodthirsty soldiers were, and he stayed on the other side of the river. You should be gasping in horror, because we don't think much of people who use women and children as shields, right? I mean, isn't that what we, one of the things that we complain about in this current conflict that we find ourselves engaged in is that one side says it's okay for women and children to take the brunt of warfare? Yeah, hero in the faith, Jacob, lineup of losers, he's number three on the list. He sent the women and children to the other side while he stayed over here. If that bothers you a lot, um, good, uh, but you'll find some comfort if you read the rest of the story. God came down and beat him up all night. It was awesome. Uh, he gave birth to a son named Judah. And if you know anything about uh, the, the nation of Israel, it was it made up of 12 tribes. And one of them was the tribe that descended from, from this boy named Judah. Judah starts out as uh, kind of a good guy. 
He has a younger brother who's full of himself and pretty sure that God himself has chosen him to be something like ruler of the world, which is probably a hard thing to hear from the little brother when you are the older brother. The problem is that his brother was right. And God had, in fact, smiled on Joseph and had appointed him to become the the second in command to Pharaoh, who literally ruled the known world in his day. But before Joseph could get that far, he ended up ticking off a lot of the brothers, And they together said, we should just kill that little punk. I'm sick and tired of him running his mouth all the time. And dad looks on him as a favorite. Dad's going to give him an unfair share of the inheritance. So we should just wipe him out now. And two boys, Judah and Reuben, both said, ah, I don't like the idea of killing our brother. We should sell him as a slave. Yep, that was Judah. Saved his brother's life. But Judah becomes my least favorite guy in the Bible. Well, one of the top two anyway. Because while he started out there, he then went on and started raising his family. I don't know what happened in that household, but the scriptures tell us that Judah's oldest son was such an evil human being that God just struck him down dead in, I mean, just the middle of the day one one day. God said, can't take any more of that guy. And uh, nuked him on the spot, struck him dead. Doesn't tell us why. I think it was too hideous to mention. God killed him. Well, the way that the, the, their culture worked was that if uh, a man had a wife and they together had not produced a male heir, that if man died, then younger brother had to marry the wife. And um, we don't go for that around here, but that's the way that it worked in their day. And so in this case, Judah's oldest son was killed by God and he had a wife who hadn't yet born a son. And so uh, Judah said, well, you have to marry my second son. So he married her off, her name was Tamar, and married her off to boy number two. But boy number two was an evil dirtbag. And without going into the mechanics of the thing, suffice it to say that he refused to do his family duty and produce a male heir. Instead, he was basically just using his sister-in-law slash wife as a sex slave. So God killed him. Um, it was a rough family to be a part of. Well, there was a third son, and the third son was still a little boy, and the little boy wasn't ready to get married yet. And so Judah, the dad, said, tell you what, you go back home tomorrow and live with your, live with your dad and have him take care of you. And when my youngest son is old enough to become a husband, I'll marry you off to him. So a bunch of years go by, the third son grows up, and he's an adult, and it becomes really apparent that Judah has absolutely no intention whatsoever of making sure that this woman is taken care of and marry her to his third son. So Tamar decides that she is going to hatch a plan for revenge. And she does, and it ends up in the most horrific story that you can imagine. We have children with us, so I'm not going to talk about it a bunch, but suffice it to say that Judah accidentally and unknowingly hires her as a prostitute. She becomes pregnant with his twins. And when she found out that, when he found out that she was pregnant, he said, she hasn't been faithful to my family. We should burn her at the stake. Until she said, I grabbed your ID. Judah said, oh, well, let's forget the burning part because 
she's more righteous than I am. Ugh. Now imagine the family from there on out. Those kids were legally both Judah's children and his grandchildren. And there's no way to ever straighten that out. Going down through the family uh, tree, the lineup of losers, you come across a guy named Salmon. They spell it like salmon, and we will call it that, okay? His name was Salmon. And uh, Salmon married the Bible's most famous prostitute, a woman named Rahab. You imagine the gossip that followed that family forever? Another guy named Boaz. You guys recognize the name Boaz? Boaz, um, we have to throw him in. I'm only giving him mention because he seems to be the actual one bright spot in the middle of the whole lineup of losers. He's he's not a loser. Boaz was like the the real hero in the the line of of the the Savior's lineage. He's a man who rescued a widow in distress. He's the bright spot in the story. But you go on down a generation or two from him and you come across this guy named Jesse. And Jesse... uh, I should probably stop and say to Dukes of Hazards fans, it's not Uncle Jesse, okay? It's just Jesse. And Jesse um, was the father of King David, but he was never going to be father of the year because he had eight sons. Uh, and one day the prophet Samuel showed up and told Jesse that, in fact, God had a special plan for one of his sons. He was going to make him king. So he needed to present all of his sons. So Jesse runs in the house. He gets seven of the boys to come outside, lines them all up in order of their birth and says, here's the firstborn, obviously God's choice. Take a look at him, Samuel. Samuel checks him out, talks with God and says, nah, I'm getting nothing. Well, here's son number two. Still pretty impressive. Yeah, I get nothing. Three, four, five, six, seven. And the prophet is saying, I know what God told me. I know what God told me. One of your boys is clearly going to be the next king. But when I'm standing here, God keeps saying no. Are you sure that you don't have any more sons? (laughs) Jesse says, well, technically, yes. It's just that he's not that impressive. And we make him live outside with the sheep. And... uh, we don't even really know where he is right now. Or the sheep. Somebody find the sheep. And uh, while you're there, get a hold of David and drag him in here. And Samuel said, yep, that's the one God was talking about. Okay, now listen, kids, you have at some point suspected that mom and dad play favorites and that uh, they love your whatever brother or sister more than you. I don't know anything about that. I'm just saying in this story... Um, there was one kid who was definitely not dad's favorite. And um, Jesse does not get father of the year. He gets a spot in the lineup of losers. But David, I mean, if ever there's a hero in the Bible, it's David, right? You don't have to know much about the Bible. And you know about King David because he was a warrior and he was the second king of Israel. And he was this incredible musician. And he was he was just this like epic hero, larger than life kind of character. But if you know David's story, if you know the rest of it, you know, that besides being one of the most well-known people in the Bible, besides being a great military leader, besides ruling Israel for 40 years and uniting the 12 tribes into one real cohesive nation, he was also a notorious adulterer. He was a murder conspirator. He was a horrible father. 
who pitted his sons against one another, and he was a revenge artist. Did you know this part about David, the revenge artist part? See, at one point, when his boys had all turned against one another, and when David had failed to, to, to bring rule and order to his house, one of his sons, Absalom, said, you know what, a guy like you is not fit to be king. I'm taking over. And so he started rallying troops and going out and stealing votes. And one day he just decided, I have enough power and leverage among the people right now to actually pull off a coup. And so they started rolling the war wagons toward Jerusalem, also known as the city of David, because that's where David had made the nation's capital. <clears throat> David was a warrior and Absalom was not. Absalom was a pretty boy. But um, David knew that sooner or later, this would come down to him versus Absalom. He knew his son didn't stand a chance, and nobody wants to fight to the death with their kid. So, David said, there's only one thing to do. We're going to have to retreat. So, you got all the people in the palace, so let's get out of here and we'll just leave. And he can have the throne and he can have the palace and he can have the nation. And so David was, was slinking out of town. There was this procession out of town before Absalom's crew got there. And uh, as, they're, as they're cutting across this hill, side-hilling on this trail, there's this guy up above him who knows about David's sin and he starts publicly shouting to David, this is exactly what you deserve. You're a filthy dirtbag and I know what you've done. And this is God judging you. And he starts, he's up on the hill above him. He starts kicking dirt and rocks down on the head of the king of Israel. And David takes it. And then he takes it some more. And then he, then he takes it some more. Finally, one of his guards says, you say the word and I will go up there and I will slit him from the gullet to the chin. David said, this might be from God. We don't know. So let's just take it. Suddenly seems like he was a humble man, doesn't it? He goes on, leaves, blah, blah, blah happens. Um, Absalom gets killed. David comes back to the throne. He lives out all of his days. There's more contest between his sons about who gets to be king. And he had promised that Solomon, the illegitimate son, would actually become the king. And so he has Solomon crowned king. And right after the ceremony, they go back to the palace. And he said, now Solomon, when you rule, it's important that you be fair. It's important that you be just and it's important that you be wise. And um, you remember me telling you that story about that guy who kicked dirt in my face? I think you know what to do. And his dying words to his son were, make him pay for it. So David passes away. Solomon goes out, guts the guy. All's well then ends well. That's David, the great hero in a lineup of losers. His son Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, but wouldn't live by his own advice. He was unfaithful to God in the most ultimate sense, in that he worshipped other gods after our God had made him the wisest, wealthiest, most famous man in the world. He also became a cruel taskmaster who uh, laid such heavy taxes upon his people that they had a hard time feeding their children, and he did it to finance a bunch of government programs that they didn't want. I promise, I'm still talking about the Bible, okay? 
Vote for Solomon, 2012. He had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam made his father Solomon look like a saint. He became a more cruel taskmaster. He became arrogant. He had the, the worst discernment in the world. He surrounded himself with idiots as his advisors. And he, he came to uh, the, the people and said, you know, uh, I know you asked me for a little bit of relief. He said, my pinky is thicker than my father's waist. You think you had it rough before? Well, suck it up because it's about to get tough in here. And he became one of the more cruel harsh rulers in Israel's history. Had several kings after him. The nation blew apart into two halves that then hated each other and made war against one another constantly. And this other king shows up on the scene. His name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah starts out as this bright spot in the middle of all these horrible kings who were everything that Solomon was and worse, everything that Rehoboam was and worse. Hezekiah started out to be this guy who as a kid just had this heart for God and a heart for his country. And he said, if my country's ever going to be what it ought to be, it needs to get right with the God who established it. I promise, I'm still talking about the Bible here. He said, if my country's ever going to be what it ought to be, it needs to live in submission to the God who gave it its existence. And he started working that direction to help bring it about. And he made some laws and he enforced some laws and all of a sudden it wasn't okay to do the things that people were doing in Israel in that day. And they started then following the law that was enforced and God said, well, I can bless that. And the nation started to prosper again. Hezekiah then one day is feeling uh, not so good and the doctors of sorts in that day came and said, yeah, it's not good, you're going to die. Hezekiah just went to his bed and he faced the wall and he started crying. He said, God, really? I mean, I come from this lineup of losers and I have been faithful to you. I have, I have gone against the current my whole life. I've tried to make this country something that once again recognizes you and glorifies you and makes you happy. You're going you're gonna to let me die young? It just doesn't seem right. The prophet shows up. says, I need to see the king. They said, he's dying. You can't see him. He says, well, I got a word. And so he goes in there and he says, uh, you ask God for a sign because God's heard your prayers and he wants you to know for sure that you are going to live. So he said, make the sun go backwards in the sky. Done. And Hezekiah is granted 15 more years of life. It's an amazing story. But you know what he did with it? The 15-year life extension? He got foolish. And he used that time to give away the secrets of the kingdom to the nation's enemies who eventually overthrew the Israeli government and destroyed the nation. It might have been better for his country if he died a young hero. Started out so well, took his place in the lineup of losers. He had a son. His name was Manasseh. And he was the most enthusiastic, committed idol worshiper that their nation had ever seen. He even said it, that all of the evil people before him hadn't taken it far enough, and so he institutionalized a new practice among the people of Israel as worship. It was human sacrifice. They started taking babies and young girls and cutting them apart and dismembering them as an act of worship. 
started out as the worst of their kings. His father started out good and turned out to be a part of the lineup of losers. Manasseh started out as the king of the losers, but he had a heart change in the middle of his life. He turned from idol worship back to God and he tried to undo his evil, but with mixed results because really, how can you undo anything that you've done? That's Matthew chapter 1. It's a lineup of losers. Some Bible scholars refer to Matthew chapter 1 as, quote, Jesus' royal lineage. But I call it a lineup of losers. Now, to be sure, Matthew wrote his version of the, the Jesus story for a clear purpose, and it was to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus was their promised Messiah, that grand fixer that God was going to send in the, back into the world to help make it right again. Matthew was trying to prove that point to a very Jewish audience and to prove that Jesus had come to establish a kingdom that is full of people who've been transformed by love and forgiveness and the power of God so that they can live for him and his purposes in this world. That's the point of the book of Matthew. And I think that Matthew's book really very effectively makes that case, if you'll just read it from start to finish one day. It connects Jesus to the Jewish world very, very clearly, but I think it also accomplishes something for everyone else, all the rest of us non-Jewish people too. It connects Jesus with us everyday people, with all of humanity, with people who come from messed up families and people who have character problems and people who started out well but ran the train off the tracks and people who started out poorly but somehow started trying to find their way in this world. Matthew takes Jesus and connects him with real people like us. Don't forget that. It's very important. God didn't use a collection of perfect people to produce a perfect Jesus, to form a club of perfect people who do perfect things for Him. Instead, He chose a lineup of losers to produce an adult man who married a pregnant teenage girl who swore that her pregnancy was a miracle from God and didn't result from immoral behavior. She gave birth to a baby in a literal cave or a barn and lived on the run for the first several years of the kid's life. She even fled the country. And then when she decided to come back home, she raised him far away from his extended family and all of their scorn and ridicule and gossip toward her and that kid. That's the story of how God brought the Savior of the world into the world. It's a story of broken, sinful, flawed people who were used by God to accomplish the most glorious thing ever, the salvation of all the messed up people in it. Because it shows the brokenness and the sins and faults and weaknesses of the people who produced and surrounded the Savior, I think it gives all of us hope that God might be able to use us too. Remember David, the least impressive of the eight brothers? not highly esteemed by his dad, lived as a fugitive for several years. He feigned mental illness for a long extended period of time. He was an adulterer who had his lover's husband killed. He was a poor father. He was a failed national leader who was forced off the throne by his own son. Remember that guy? Seriously, how can God use a guy like that? Personally, I would have disqualified David. You're out. His son Solomon... He institutionalized the worship of other gods. I don't know why God didn't strike him dead. Kick him out too. Throw his corpse on the pile. 
I would have judged this case pretty quick and went another direction. I did not have time for the Solomons of this world to be given the mantle of leadership. And Abraham and Isaac both betrayed their wives, and I have no tolerance for that. They're both out. Unusable. But that stands in stark contrast to the God who the Bible is trying to reveal to us. God seems to almost have a preference for the weak, the ignoble, the broken, when it comes to working out His plan to convince the world of His love. At the very least, He seems unfazed by our imperfection. This feels a little forced to say it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because I think the story of Jesus' family makes this point. There is nothing that disqualifies you from the love of God. And apparently, there's nothing that He can't work with or around. Glory be to His name. What I'm talking about this morning is the very essence of the Bible's message. God has a plan for your life. And your brokenness and your failures and your flaws and your sins have not changed that a bit. God has a plan for your life. If God uses the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Davids and the Hezekiahs of this world to bring Jesus into it, then He can also use the you's and the me's to spread the message of His love and His acceptance. If God used the Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs and Davids and Hezekiahs of this world to bring Jesus into it, then He can use you and I as evidence of His love and His forgiveness and His creative transformative work. There's only one question that stands between imperfect you and the life of glorious service to God. And the question is this, will you let Him use you? Because there is nothing that you have done. Stretch all of you Wesleyans. There's nothing you're going to do in the future that's going to make God go, well, not this gal. I mean, she's gone too far. God has a plan for your life. Guess what? Your brokenness, your flaws, they don't surprise God. They don't disappoint Him because He never expected anything other than reality. And He wants to use you inclusive of your imperfection to be part of the plan to convince the world that God loves them in their imperfection and brokenness too. Okay, I want you to listen close. I'm going to announce this ahead of time, so don't gasp. I am going to swear in church. Okay? Just be ready. Um... I'll explain it, but I'm going to. I have this friend who said to some people in a church I used to attend, you know what your problem is? You're too damned holy. And after we all went, <gasps> he said, let me explain. He said, I know that you're imperfect. The problem is you act like you're not. You put on all these masks and you act one way in front of us. And you act so holy and perfect that the rest of us give up hope that we could ever be like you. 
Why don't you take the mask off and be real like the rest of us? He said it to some people who needed to hear it. I think. See what the world needs to hear? Is not, look at us. We've been so transformed that we're awesome. And you, horrible people, can only hope to be awesome like me one day. You know what the world needs to hear? I was a broken mess. God came into my life and He's changing me. But there's still some brokenness and when we get to know whether, I'll show you the broken. I'm not wallowing in it. I don't plan to stay in it, but I know this, that this side of perfection, there's still a God who wants to use me to massage His love into the cracked, broken, bleeding lives of the people around me. God seems unfazed by our imperfection. Apparently there's nothing He can't work with or around to bring about His goodness in this world. What I'm talking about this morning is the very essence of the Bible's message. God has a plan for your life. There's just one question. Will you let Him use you? The good news is you don't have to get perfect first. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to get all polished up in order for God to use you if He used the lineup of losers. All of us share a common condition. We're all imperfect and we've all been lied to by the enemy of our souls. He told us that we were such a mess, God couldn't use us. We better hide for a while longer. We better act great on the outside and then furiously, frantically work on the inside so that hopefully one day this will match this and then God can use me. We're all aware of the the truth of our imperfection, but most of us believe a half-truth that we were told a long time ago. And the half-truth is this, you're not good enough for God. It's a half-truth that takes the fact of our sinfulness and our other deficiencies and translates that into rejection by God. And that's a full-on lie. That half-truth is a full-on lie. If this morning you feel a very long way away from God, or if you feel ashamed in His presence, if you feel worthless or useless until you can get your act together, I have some incredible news for you. Here it is. God loves you deeply, and He doesn't pretend that you're anything other than what and who you are. Knowing you for real, He loves you for real. Man, that's good news. Listen, there's a version of Christianity that is preached that said God puts on these special glasses and sees you as Jesus. No, He doesn't. God doesn't lie to Himself and He doesn't pretend that you're Jesus. He said, I sent Jesus because you needed Him. That doesn't change. Grace is undeserved favor. If God sees me as Jesus, I don't need His grace. But God knows who you really are. Sins and all. And says, I can work with that. And I love you, inclusive of all of that. That's real grace. If you've been defiant toward Him or have been ignoring Him, He stands ready to forgive you and to get back together with you right now. Right now. 
If you've been keeping your distance from Him or, or waiting to get involved in His kingdom project, His plan to convince the whole world of His love, you don't have to wait any longer because God isn't waiting for you to get your act together. He's smarter than that. He's waiting only for you to acknowledge that you need Him. That you need His help to be any different or to act any different than you currently are. He's just waiting for you to admit that you need His help in order to become a believable messenger of His love. And so if you're ready to admit your need for Him, if you're ready to admit your need for His transforming power in your life, and in just a moment we'll pray and God will close that gap between you and Him. And you can begin today to be used by God to make a difference in this world. Isn't that what you always dreamed of when you were young? I'm going to make a difference. My life's going to count. Some of you got halfway through life and you gave up on all of that. I want you to hear today, God never gave up on His plan to use you in your imperfection. You may not believe in you, but God does. And that makes a lot of difference. It makes all the difference. Matthew's book is all about the acceptance and the affection of God for messed up and imperfect you. Matthew 1 focuses on a lineup of losers. I'm not prepared to call any of you a loser or to call all of you a lineup of losers. That's, that's not how I think of you, of us. I suppose it's how I think of me from time to time. I can recite a catalog of my imperfections. Some of you can see my blind spots. You could add some that I haven't picked up on. But alongside those very real things is another reality. I know that God uses me. And I know that He's doing it right this very moment to speak to some of you who feel a very long way away from God. You might feel rejected by Him or like a disappointment to Him or useless to Him. Those things are all lies from Satan himself. If today you want more than anything else to have the gap between you and God closed, then in your hearts, just lean in God's direction and we're going to talk to Him because God accepts you. And if you will accept that fact, He will begin to use you this very day to bring His kingdom to earth. I want you to stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes. Most Sundays, I, uh, I encourage the congregation to, to give one another the utmost in privacy when it comes to making these spiritual decisions. So I'll ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes and keep them closed. And, and if you're making a decision to say yes to whatever it is that God spoke to you about that day, I'll ask you to just raise your hand so I can see it and then I'll pray for you. Today, um, I'm, I'm going to go about halfway there. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed so that people have the privacy to make a decision. When you make a decision to really lean hard God's direction, 
to walk God's direction? When, when you make a decision to pursue being used by God to make a difference in this world, you can't do it in secret. We may be secret agents out there in the world, but we're not supposed to be secret from one another within the kingdom. Listen, I promise you that this is a safe place to admit that you're broken. We're not going to go home from here and talk about those poor wretches at the altar. We're going to celebrate that some people got square with God today. And let Him show them His love and acceptance. If today you just want to know for sure that you belong to God, I want to give your life to Him and allow Him to use you for His glory and His good in this world. I want to, I want to encourage you to come to this altar and to do it right now. I'll give you five seconds to make up your mind and then we're going to pray. God, I'm a... Uh, Grateful that my name is not Shea Altiel, but I somehow see myself standing in line right next to the guy. Somehow uh, a voice or two or twelve has gotten my ear from time to time and led me to believe that, that I'm used up, that I'm beyond help, that I'm not good enough, smart enough, wise enough, whatever, enough. And that the best I can hope for is that you'll take pity on me and spare me. I think some other people can believe those same lies. There's a collection of my brothers and sisters kneeling here today and probably some more who said, I just can't step out there. I already feel like a big enough loser. There are some who are gathered here today who are just saying, it's me. But I desperately want to believe that God loves me and accepts me. I don't need Him to pretend that I'm awesome. I just need Him to love me. I'll let Him work on me and change me. I hope I change as time goes by. But what I need today is mercy and grace from a God who is glad to give it. I don't know. Maybe some of them are leaning your way for the very first time. If so, Lord, do what you do the first time people come your direction. Accept them. Grant them grace and forgiveness for all the wrong things they, they've ever done. Send your Holy Spirit to live in their hearts. Keep them very close to you. Help them to grow up in their faith and to find a meaningful life of service, just giving their lives away to others. Help them this day. But I know that many people who are kneeling at this altar have known you for a very long time, but they've felt far away because they feel ashamed of who they are whenever they can tell you are in the room. I pray forgiveness for all of them. 
for whatever sins are showing up on the radar in their minds today that seem so big that you would be disinterested in them. Grant them forgiveness and cleanse their consciences so that their hearts feel clean in your presence. I know some just look at their collection of abilities and all they see is the failures and the brokenness and the inability. Lord, I'm asking that You would come their way today and say, I can use You. My power is made perfect in human weakness. Would You do that for them today? And for those who just feel like God's too far away, I've wandered too far away to make my way back. I pray that You would just make it abundantly clear that You've got Your arm around them right now. Two minutes ago, they felt a million miles away. They're cozied up next to You right now. Lord, we do pray that You'd forgive us of our sins. We pray that You'd give us power by Your Holy Spirit to live differently. But we also ask that You would give us faith. The confidence to believe in Your mercy and Your grace. In Your holy name, I ask these things. Amen.